Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Hello listeners and welcome to today's episode of Radio Astronomy with me, Ezzy Pearson. On today's show, I'm speaking with Andy Weir, author of The Martian and Artemis, as well as his new novel, Project Hail Mary, which was published worldwide on the 4th of May. The book follows the adventures of Ryland Grace, who wakes up on a spacecraft with no idea how or why he is there, only that he is the sole survivor of the crew. Over time, Grace's memory slowly returns as he remembers he is on a mission to save humanity from an extinction-level threat. If you haven't had the chance to read the book yet, don't worry. We'll give a shout out before we really start getting into the details if you want to avoid spoilers. But first, may I say thank you and welcome to Andy. Hi, thanks for having me. It's absolutely wonderful to have you on here. It's great to be here. This is your third book which looks into human exploration of space. What is it that keeps drawing you back to this topic? I don't know. Um, I just, it's always really fascinating to me. I just love space and space stuff, both, um, you know, I mean, in, in real life, I'm all about the the probes as well. I love the, uh, like the Perseverance lander and the Ingenuity helicopter and all that stuff. Uh, um, although it's not exciting to write a book about, you know, a probe, but I, I'm just as into that. I'm into all things not on earth, I guess. I, I don't, I guess I don't know why. What, what What is it that gives a person their passions and interests? Who knows? Nurture, nature, maybe the fact that I grew up in a household where my father was a, uh, a particle physicist and my mother was an electrical engineer, so there was sort of likely I'd be a nerd, but who knows? That, that might go a little way to, to answering my next question, which is all of your books have kind of ended up being love letters to problem solving. And I think I read somewhere that you said it was like The Martian started out as you writing a series of physics word problems and it kind of got away from you. <laughs> <laughs> well, not quite. I mean, that, that's kind of... Um, yeah, The Martian started off as a serial, right? And I was like doing, you know, an episode at a time, releasing a chapter at a time. But the thing about The Martian was um, at the time, because of prior works, short stories, comics and stuff that I'd written, I had a, a, an email list of readers, regular readers, who were hardcore nerds just the, the the nerdiest nerds ever these these are my people and then <laughs> so i uh i wrote a, a serial for them i you know that's why the martian is so tech and science heavy is i was writing it for the people who do want to see the work they want to see the numbers they want to see all that stuff and so i had no idea it would have any mainstream appeal um but it, but then you know that worked well, and I really enjoyed writing it. And I'm like, well, if, and it became, of course, this ridiculous success that I I didn't understand. I still don't really understand what it is that I did write. Why does a book full of algebra problems basically become a bestseller? I don't know. But people like reading it, and I like writing it. So I'm like, let's do that. You know. <laughs> so, and yes, as you said earlier, I love uh, problem solving. I love it in books. I love, I love. Again, I love writing it. I love reading it. I love watching it in movies and TV. What I love most is when a scenario seems hopeless and then the protagonist solves it. I mean, as a consumer, when I'm watching or reading something, I love it when I'm like, I just do not see any way the protagonist is going to get out of this. 
I just don't see any way for them to solve this problem. And then in the story, they solve the problem using means that I was aware of. Like I had been given all the all the information I needed to solve the problem, but I didn't figure it out. And the protagonist did that. I love that when I'm a reader or a viewer. Hmm. So I try to, I try to, I try to write that. Yeah. I, I did notice that when I was reading Project Hail Mary, that there was definitely a couple of places where I suddenly went, oh, I remember you saying that right back at the beginning. So that definitely yeah. could see that. Um, and of course, you're the writer, you're an author, you are inventing this world. So you can just change the problem to be something that you know how to solve. So what? how do you kind of go about constructing those? Do you start with the problem or the solution? I start with the problem and then, uh, well, and usually the problem comes organically from the, uh, from the text, you know, it's like, okay, this happens. And well, what's the thing that could go wrong? Well, here's something that could really go wrong, or it's really likely, or the desperate thing they had to do to solve the previous problem leads to this problem and so on. Um, uh, then once I have the problem, then I start thinking of how to solve it. And if I cannot possibly think of any way to solve it, I'll say like, well, what could I change in the story? What little piece of technology or tool or something could be available to the protagonist that enables them to solve the problem in a cool way? And if I can think of something cool and then seed it earlier in the story, mm. then... Um, then that works. But sometimes I just can't think of anything at all. And then I just have that, that problem doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Takes a lot of the magic out of it. You know, if you're, if you're reading it, if you, if anybody listens to this interview, then they're reading my books. <laughs> it kind of takes a little of the magic out of it. They're like, oh, well, <laughs> these guys aren't going to encounter anything they can't solve. <laughs> well, you definitely put them through the rigor. They've got to work to get there. Um, yeah, they do. And you mentioned there that uh, a lot of your the, it's always quite a like hopeful type of thing. Um, and I noticed that a common theme throughout all of your books is that there's a lot of international cooperation of people working together. Is that a kind of a conscious decision on your part or more just a natural aspect of what happens when you're writing about spaceflight? Um, a little column A, a little column B. I mean, I, I am an optimist. I have, I have this really high opinion of humanity. Um, and I do think that we're very good at, well, in, under normal circumstances, we're fantastic. We're always just making the world a better place by default. Um, that's why if you pick any year in human history and then imagine the year 100 years prior to that, you will, and then say, which one of those years would you rather live in? You'll always choose the latter year, pretty much. I mean, I think we can all agree that 2020 sucked, <laughs> but, um, but I would rather live through 2020 again than 1920. Mm, yeah. You know, I, I, I've gone my whole life without seeing a no colored sign on a door and, uh, you know, none of my friends have died of typhus. Right? Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, yeah, so I do have a, a, you know, faith in humanity. And um, when, when we need to work together, we usually do. I think, uh, yeah. And, and so in my books, there's always these large scale, you know, major things going on. And so... They kind of have to work together, especially in Project Hail Mary, where it's literally all of humanity will die if we don't find a solution to this problem. <laughs> Which I think now is the time to kind of put out a bit of a spoiler alert. We're going to start going into the book. So Deep. if you haven't written, uh, if you haven't read it and you don't want to be spoiled, then pause here and you can always come back when you finish the book. So in 
the book, of course, you are the humanity is faced with an existential threat, which turns out to basically be um, the sun gets infected. <laughs> the sun yeah. catches a cold. <laughs> Something like that. Well, it's really more like, uh, I mean, the sun itself is not in any danger. We are in danger <laughs> as a result of what's happening to the sun. Um, so basically a microscopic organism, um, you know, uh, a single-celled organism called astrophage. That's what we. That's what the humans in the story name it. it, it it's a. It's like twenty picometers across. It's too small to see. It's like a. It's like a bacteria-sized um, microbe. Um, infects our star, the sun. And it's an extraterrestrial life form. It came from outside of our solar system. And what it does is it just, it's not intelligent. It doesn't have anything like that. It's just basically like algae. Um, but instead of growing mm. in oceans, it grows you know, on the surface of stars. And the surface of a star isn't like, you know, a ground. It's like, it's like gas, right? Mm. So it is kind of like an ocean. It's kind of like, a you know, a thick fluid and these astrophages, they, they live on the surface of the star, they gather a bunch of energy, and then they use that energy to migrate to a nearby planet to get the, to, to reproduce. And why does it migrate instead of just reproducing right there? Because there's no atoms on the sun other than hydrogen and helium, and it needs things like carbon and oxygen and stuff like that to be able to reproduce. So it migrates to a planet, reproduces, then goes back to the sun with its offspring, and then continues um, that cycle. And it also, uh, some of them will spore out completely away from the star in all directions um, to seed other stars. This is what algae does. This is what mold does. This is like not remarkable, except for the fact that it's extraterrestrial and it lives on a star instead of a planet. Um, but this is a real problem for us because it's breeding out of control on the sun. There's nothing to stop it. And it's like an algae bloom we have those in real life in our oceans and stuff, and it's really bad. Um, and this is like an algae bloom, but on the sun. And so it's it there is now so much astrophage on the sun that the total amount of light being emitted by the sun is starting to go down a little bit. Once it gets down to a certain point, life on Earth will not work anymore. Um, Earth is a you know pretty delicate ecosystem, and our ecosystem did not evolve to handle variant uh, solar output <laughs> like, um, because the sun has a pretty constant output. Mm -hmm. So our, our Earth's whole ecosystem, if the sun goes down in luminance by just a few percent, um, Earth's ecosystem won't work anymore and the food chain will collapse and then the higher predators like ourselves won't have anything to eat and basically most things on the planet will die. And so they have to deal with this problem. <laughs> most of your books have been dealing with the sort of mechanical bits and physics and, and engineering problems. You know, you've described this entire organism. Was it difficult as a writer to start thinking in this more biological terms or did you just have to, to consult some different experts? <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess it's more consult different textbooks because I'm also really interested in, in biology and or the, the mechanisms of life. I, I, that has always been fascinating to me as well. So I guess it's just another science that I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. It's just, again, a science that under normal circumstances is not that interesting to write a book about, mm -hmm. right? People immediately are interested in, oh, you have an astronaut in space. And yeah, I mean, that's cool. Yeah. But if it's like, oh, you have a scientist in a lab working on gene splicing to try to reduce the likelihood of failures and cancer detection mechanisms, and, you know, it's like that can't be the story. The story would be something else surrounding the character. Mm -hmm. um, 
But yeah, I'm also very interested in biology, not nearly as educated in it, though. Mm -hmm. Um, And as you progress with the book, you find out that, of course, the astrophage isn't the only extraterrestrial life that's in the book. Um, Right. uh, The main character, Ryland Grace, uh, finds a new friend uh, in the form of of an entity from the star uh, planet around Eridani. Um, 40 Eridani. 40 the Eridani, star, 40, yes. 40 Eridani. There are lots of stars with the name Eridani in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, one of the things that I, I really enjoyed was the fact that the, both of the, the astrophage and, and Rocky felt very alien and weren't just humans in suits. They were, they were believable, but right. they were still managed to be kind of believable that they were real. Um, I was just mm-hmm. curious how Thanks. you go about building those like entire life forms. <laughs> well, astrophage was, um, you know, that's the that's the main mover of the plot, and also it it feels much more authentic uh, for a few reasons, for, or I hope, you know, that's the goal. <laughs> it feels more authentic for a few reasons. First off, it's not like a little green man who says, "Take me to your leader." It's a microbe. That's it. It's mold. It's not. It's not intelligent. It, it has no agenda. It's just mold. It breeds. And it's like, why wouldn't our first experience with alien life, why have we always assumed that our first encounter with extraterrestrial life would be intelligent life? Or I guess because we always assume that anything that has the ability to travel interstellar distances must have intellect and intelligence to have developed that. Mm -hmm. But in this case, I I invented (laughs) a a microbe that naturally evolved it. so, you know, over time it evolved it. And also, since we're way into spoilers, <laughs> um, we we later learn in the book that um, astrophage, a progenitor of astrophage, you know, billions of years ago, an ancestor of astrophage is ultimately what seeded life on Earth. And um, so this, there was an interstellar life form that was like the, you know, prehistoric version of astrophage that had a similar life cycle, but obviously not as effective because it didn't, you know, infect all the stars, but it did manage to seed life to Earth. And so actually within the context of my fictional setting here, life originally evolved uh, around the planet that we call Tau Ceti E. <laughs> and so around in orbit around the star Tau Ceti, that is where life naturally evolved. And, and that was the only quote unquote genesis. So life naturally evolved there, went through evolution. Uh, I intentionally picked Tau Ceti as a star for a lot of reasons. Part of it is because Tau Ceti is billions of years older than our sun. So the life that I imagined being there had like a few billion year head start on us. And so it had a few billion years to evolve into these like interstellar microbes. And then those interstellar microbes seeded uh, life on Earth about four billion years ago so that it can stay in line with real science, right? Mm. (laughs) And then that is where all life on Earth comes from, is uh, descendants of that. And also the alien you mentioned, uh, from the from the star forty Eridani, their homeworld was also seeded by the same thing. So all of the life in this story ultimately came from a single uh, genesis, mm-hmm. so to speak. Like life, life only happened, only evolved once on one planet. And the reason I did that is because um, a few reasons. First off, um, these stars forty Eridani, Sol—that's our star—and um, 
Tau Ceti are all really, really close to each other in the grand scheme of things. I mean, for us, it's a ridiculously huge distance, but, mm. you know, Tau Ceti is 12 light years away. Forti Eridani is 16 light years away. The Milky Way galaxy is 100,000 light years across. So mm. just to give you a notion of how extremely close these stars are together... And to have life independently evolve at each of those three uh, uh, solar systems, to me, just seemed way too unlikely. Mm -hmm. So I wanted an explanation for why there's life on all these systems that are so close together. So that's what I came up with for that. And the other thing is it made things so much easier for me as a writer <laughs> because I didn't, I, I wanted to, um, I, I wanted there to be these life forms and stuff like that. And I like to go way down the rabbit hole on inventing the science and stuff. And if I made a completely different genesis form of life, I would have to invent their biological processes. I would have to say, all right, from the ground up, mm. what's their equivalent of DNA? How, how does that work? You know, what, and all this stuff like that. And I was just like, I don't want to do that. If I say there was a panspermia event, which is you know what happened here, then I can just say, everybody's got mitochondria, everybody's got DNA, everybody's got ribosomes, the cellular mechanisms are the same for everybody, and now I don't have to think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, your work, work is always very much rooted in, in what is science fact. Um, but with this one, you... you straight a bit more into the realms of, of fiction because you had things like aliens, um, uh, interstellar travel, which, you know, we're still a long way away from. Uh, was that this a bit more difficult to balance the, the fact and the fiction in this one? Uh, no, it really wasn't because, um, uh, you know, so my, you know, The Martian is a very plausible book. Like, that's a thing. You can see that happening. You can imagine it happening. Artemis is a little further away. You're like, okay, it's a city on the moon, but it's far enough into the future. And I tried to make it as realistic as possible. This is, you got aliens and interstellar travel and all that stuff like that. But I'm not, I'm not too worried about keeping things in the realm of stuff that's likely to happen. I'm much more interested in keeping things uh, into the realm of not breaking the laws of physics. Mm -hmm. So all, all of the things in this book in Project Hail Mary are possible. You know, nobody travels faster than light. You know, uh, I tried to make the uh, the fact that there are three biosphere planets in this book. I tried to make it all really close together. I tried to make that plausible because of panspermia events and stuff like that. There is one physics MacGuffin in the book that I invented, which is... Um, well, you're probably thinking of uh, Xenonite or something, mm -hmm. but I, I no, it's called super cross-sectionality. <laughs> <laughs> um, the I, I I wasn't I wasn't satisfied with just saying, oh, astrophage lives on the sun and it collects energy and then it uses that energy as propulsion. No, I went way down the rabbit hole and I'm like, okay. I just say I, I wanted to know how does astrophage collect the energy? How does it store the energy? Why isn't it vaporized at the sun? Um, all these things like that. How much energy does it have? How does its propulsion system work? And basically, it collects energy from the sun and mass converts it into neutrinos. Mm. And then, and neutrinos are very small particles. Um, and then it stores those neutrinos. And then, when it needs energy again, it uses the it annihilates those neutrinos to make light and light can be used as propulsion. And so that's how astrophage works. Um, now, some problems with that are neutrinos are notoriously difficult to contain. Mm, they, I was thinking that. <laughs> they, 
Yeah, they um, neutrinos routinely pass clean through the entire planet Earth without colliding with a single atom. So there's my physics MacGuffin: is that the cell membrane of astrophage it ha has a property that I'm calling super cross-sectionality. It um, nothing can quantum tunnel through it. You must collide with it. There's no there's no quantum tunneling through it. And so um, that's how they store neutrinos on the inside. The neutrinos can't can't get through their cell membrane. So that's my MacGuffin. And um, it's so deep into the woods that most readers just would not give a crap. But a few readers would. And they'll be like, okay. Yeah, I, I think e even particle physicists would be like, okay, he gave a little bit of lip service to the fact that this is not really possible. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go ahead and suspend my disbelief because... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, and you you did mention there something uh, called xenonite, which is yeah. basically this this wonder material that is yeah ridiculously strong. Was that completely just made up, or or is there any basis for that? <laughs> totally made up, total fiction. <laughs> um, xenonite is a technology. So the alien, the intelligent alien, uh, is named Rocky, or that's the name that the um, main the human main character gives them and rocky's race the human main character names them Ir iridians because they're from eridani 40 eridani so he calls them iridians the reason he's making up these words is because um iridian language is basically whale song but they have actually five sets of vocal cords so it sounds more like whale chords or a whale chorus i guess and so it's impossible for a human to pronounce iridian words mm -hmm. Uh, and so you have to come up with human pronounceable words for anything. Xenonite is a technology invented by Iridians, and it's a material that is incredibly strong. It's much stronger than steel. It's stronger than anything that humans have ever invented. It has a tensile strength that's like so good that they could actually, the Iridians have a space elevator on their planet, um, which the only thing that keeps us from making a space elevator here is that we don't have a material strong enough to make one. Mm -hmm. And so xenonite is is that material. And I I I so two two questions that might arise. Why did I say that the aliens have this technology at all? Um, especially in the book, we learned that in most ways they are behind humans in technology. Mm -hmm. um, they don't they never invented computers, they um they don't understand relativity, they don't know what radiation is. They, you know, they're 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 way behind us in terms of technology. But um, their materials technology is above reproach. And um, so uh, the reason I had them have this technology is because I, I, I wanted the alien, uh, Rocky, and the human to have completely incompatible environments. I wanted, I wanted it to be like a human in uh, an Iridian's environment would die immediately. An Iridian in a human environment would die immediately. I'm sick of the, uh, you know, Humanoids with forehead bumps, you know, mm. being the aliens. I'm sick of like a, a hot green woman who wants to learn more about this earth thing called lovemaking, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, want, I wanted an alien alien. I wanted every aspect of it to be alien. Mm. So um, I said like, well, uh, for the Iridians, I, th this is kind of a long answer, but I'll get there, I promise. For the Iridians, I said like, when I was designing their species and how they worked, I started with the planet. So I said... I chose uh, uh, a planet in orbit around 40 Eridani. It's a real planet. It's a real exoplanet that really exists. And it's really close 
to Eridon. It's really close to the star. It orbits every 46 days. It's like kind of like even closer, I think, to their star than Mercury is to ours, right? It's really close. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, okay, it's going to be really, really hot. Okay. And also they would need a, you know, reasonably good atmosphere to distribute that heat rather than just vaporize whatever's there and freeze whatever's on the backside of the planet. Right. Um, So I'm like, okay, it's really hot. Um, But I also had decided, you know, since all of the life in this system is kind of like earth, they need liquid water. I'm like, okay, it's like 210 degrees Celsius. How do I keep water liquid? Well, the answer is have an incredibly high atmospheric pressure. So their atmosphere, I decided, is 29 atmospheres of pressure. I'm like, and then water would be liquid at that temperature and pressure. I'm like, okay. So we've learned a little bit about these creatures. Um, With all that in mind, I'm like, wow, their spaceship hulls would have to be really, really strong to hold that kind of atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, rather than say their spaceship is this gigantic brick of steel or something like that, I said like, okay, they have a material that allows it to be thin. And also I wanted it to be really thin and light and also have the option of being clear so that um, Rocky and Ryland could have just basically a thin plane of kind of like glass between them. But on one side is an Earth-like atmosphere and on the other side is 29 times that pressure. And the only way to have that the, that that image the way I wanted was for there to be a material with unbelievably high tensile strength. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's where Xenonite came from. <laughs> As for the name, Xenonite, uh, and our, our protagonist finds that one of the main ingredients in Xenonite is xenon, which is a noble element that does not react with anything. It doesn't, it doesn't form molecules. It doesn't react at all with anything. Um, the reason I did that is I just wanted to make a I just wanted it to be some sort of technology that he has no grasp on understanding. He's like, I have no idea what is going on with this material. I don't know why it's so strong. And I have no idea why it has xenon in it. Like, what the hell can you do with xenon? So I decided to kind of like conceptually link how much xenon doesn't want to bond with things to the strength of this material. (laughs) Like, basically, xenonite, one way or another, the only way to break xenonite is to make xenon bond with something. (laughs) Mm. Well, if there's one thing that, like, space exploration has taught us, it's that the universe doesn't act like the way we think it does. So I can quite easily believe that there's some material out there with its properties. (laughs) In the words of Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, what is it? The universe is under no obligation to be convenient or cooperative <laughs> or whatever. Really I, 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 th- I, I heard that. I heard him say that. I don't know if he invented the quote. Uh, speaking of the universe being uncooperative, one of the things that really gets highlighted in this book is just how difficult it is to get to another star. Yeah, it's really hard. Um, <laughs> the amount of things that had to get done to to, to build the Hail Mary um, is remarkable um why did you decide to kind of step up the difficulty level i suppose you know you've done books about mars and the moon and now you've gone to a completely other star right well i decided that i mean that that was kind of the premise of the story that's where i started Mm -hmm. i was like okay i mean it it was a bunch of little pieces that came together and i went through a bunch of revs but ultimately i settled on the plot um alien microbe threatens our sun and um they notice that the star Tau Ceti is not affected. And so they send a a mission there to find out why. And it seemed like a good concise plot. It's like, okay, 
all of humanity is in danger. Our only hope is to find out why Tau Ceti is immune to astrophage and hope that we can reproduce it in our own solar system. And, you know, an interstellar mission is very, very difficult. So it's going to be a small number of people, in this case, one. It was originally supposed to be three crew members, but only one of them survived the trip. And it's, it's, it's a good premise. It's like, oh, it's this guy, this one person, his job to save all of humanity. And so that was just basically the premise of the story. Um, but, and then you said, like, you know, why'd you make it so difficult? Well, it is difficult. Like, so basically, the, the fun part of this is that astrophage, which is the microbe, is both the cause and kind of solution to our problem. It's infecting the sun and stuff like that, but they can harvest it, farm it and stuff like that, and use that as an ideal spacecraft fuel. If we had astrophage in real life and weren't in danger with our star and stuff like that, um, we would be able to make interstellar craft. Mm -hmm. I mean, but also, I mean, I just did the math. I'm like, okay, I've defined how astrophage, they store energy as mass, they release it as light. And I, okay, with that in mind, like, how do you make a propulsion system that would work for that. I'm like, okay, I came up with something for that and that was fun. And then I'm like, how much astrophage would you need to get to Tau Ceti? And the answer is something like, it's actually not that much in the grand scheme of things, it's like 2 million kilograms. It's like, okay. Um, to make 2 million kilograms of astrophage, I mean, you, the Earth, the entire energy industry of our planet doesn't make anywhere near that much energy. Like, And so they had to come up with ways of like, mass producing astrophage and getting the energy necessary to do that. And so these are all things that I'm like, oh, these are neat challenges to show them having to overcome. Mm -hmm. um, and this book was, uh, it, it's essentially one man having to deal with the end of the world whilst being in, locked in a box by himself. Um, <laughs> well, for part of it, and then he makes a friend. And then he makes a friend. Um, <laughs> yeah. But obviously, you you would have written this book quite a while ago before the current yeah. world situation. Um, yes. And then yeah. possibly editing it over the pandemic. Were there any changes made um, given what's happened since? No, um, because um, I, I we actually finished all of the editing for the book before the pandemic took root. Mm. So I was completely done. Like all the text you're reading was written, edited, developed, copy edited, everything before the pandemic was really an issue. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, I turned in my first draft in January and at that time there was something weird going on in Wuhan and that was it. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and so a lot of people say, oh, this is like an allegory for the pandemic. I'm like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> and the pandemic itself is why it took so long for the book to get out mm. because of course it shut down the the printing production pipelines and and everything else so that's what uh that's why i think it was like it's a total of like 14 months from final draft completed completed um till um release <laughs> <laughs> um and uh one of the sort of slightly nicer stories that happened last year was the discovery of potential discovery of phosphine in the atmospheres above Venus. Um, yeah. Was that something that you, like, how did you react to when you heard that news? 
<laughs> I thought it was funny because like, again, I had already written the book and I'm like, wow, whenever I write a book, something interesting happens to the body that I wrote the book about. Mm-hmm. Venus features in the book because that's where astrophage are migrating to, to get there to, to reproduce. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was funny. You know, when I, when I wrote The Martian, like shortly before the book came out, they discovered like recurring slope linear, which is liquid water flowing on the surface of Mars. So Mars was in the headlines when my book came out, which was <laughs> awesome. And then, you know, when I wrote Artemis, like shortly after I wrote Artemis, NASA reinvigorated the moon landing program and called it Artemis, mm-hmm. um, which is just a coincidence, by the way. They didn't name it after my book or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, Artemis is the Greek goddess of the moon, and she's Apollo's twin sister. It's an obvious thing to name a moon thing. But still, that was interesting. Then I write a book where that involves Venus, and next thing you know, hey, look, we discovered neat stuff in Venus. <laughs> so, <laughs> awesome. I should write a book about someone curing cancer or something. <laughs> So I, I understand that the 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 rights to this one have have already been sold uh, to make a movie out of this. Um, so any idea on on when that may or may not happen? <laughs> no idea. I mean, they're working on it. Where um, MGM bought the film rights, bought them outright, not just did an option, which means they had to spend a lot more money on them. And that usually means that um, uh, a studio is taking it seriously, but doesn't guarantee anything. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Ryan Gosling is attached to play the lead, to play Ryland Grace, which is neat because they have the same initials. Yeah. <laughs> Ryan Gosling, Ryland Grace. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller, the directing duo. They're a hot property in Hollywood, and uh, they're set to direct. And uh, we have Drew Goddard working on the screenplay right now. And Drew Goddard uh, wrote the adaptation for The Martian. So mm-hmm. we know he's really, really good at what he does. Also, he's done a whole bunch of other stuff that shows he's really, really good at what he does. <laughs> but this is about an obsessive focus on me and myself. So, you know, <laughs> Drew Goddard's interactions with me have been just these two things. <laughs> well, uh, having read the book, I absolutely loved it. So I am very much looking forward to hopefully seeing it on the big screen someday. Uh, Thank you. And if that interview has piqued any of our listeners' interests, then you can go out and find out how and if Ryland Grace and his friend Rocky managed to save their planets by picking up Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir, which is on sale now. Um, So thank you very much for taking the time out of your day to talk to us today, Andy. Thanks for having me. And I hope lots of people enjoy your book as well. Yeah, I really like the idea of people listening to this podcast hearing all the plot spoilers <laughs> and then wandering off and buying the book. <laughs> well, we did put a spoiler warning. So if you did yes, listen, that's true. That's if you true. did listen you know, before I, reading the book, the, that's your own fault. Exactly. That's their <laughs> fault. That's their problem. The Romanian version of the of the book has, you know, in Romanian obviously, on the flap it says like, and then he meets an extraterrestrial and alien and they work together. Mm-hmm. It's like all right. <laughs> I trust the Romanian publisher to know how to sell Romanian books to Romanians, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And with that, we'll end. So from all of us here at Sky at Night magazine, goodbye. Good night and good luck. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Brittany Colley. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to Acast, iTunes or Spotify.